this uh, last sermon before he gets married. He's going off to be married, and then he'll be away with us, uh, from us for the next three weeks or so. And so I've asked him to come and, and share the message with us this morning. So Mike? Good morning. You guys are always more caffeinated than the first service. I had to test the microphone at first service to make sure it was on. Can you guys hear me? I'm loud enough. Hearing won't be the problem. Um, well, good morning. Um, I'm going to give you a minute here. to. I'm going to ask you to pull out the Bible in front of you, and I'm going to do the same thing. You're on page 838 this morning. And the reason I'm doing this, uh, one, I think you should be able to see you know, what I'm saying coming from the text. Uh, but also, uh, we're early in Mark's gospel here. We're in chapter 3, and I want you guys to be able to see uh, what it's like to read this gospel for the first time. So we're going to make a couple references to things that have already happened in Mark's gospel. Uh, but first, I want to share with you quickly, uh, there's a Christian author named Donald Miller, and he's written probably a dozen books by now. Uh, he's produced a movie, and you know he's, he's kind of a big deal. So he was speaking at this conference of just pastors, and he said it was about a thousand pastors you know, out in front of them, and he said, all right, guys, I want everybody to say, what's your favorite movie? And he said, within seconds, like, the place erupted. People were screaming their favorites, and they were like, that movie's terrible. It's my movie. You know, this is better. It's got to be Gladiator. He said, you know, there was, like, all this commotion. And then he said, okay, okay. He said, now, quiet back then. He said, now, second question. He said, what is your favorite line of the Apostles' Creed? He said it was crickets. There's no, in, a, in a room full of a 1,000 pastors. And so he is saying this is not a problem with the creed. He said, but this is just explaining how we are as people. We're much more attracted to narratives. We interact more with a narrative, with a story, than we do with just a list of doctrine. Um, and so I was going to actually experiment with that and not tell the story and just ask those two questions. But then I realized I'm in an Anglican church and someone might get way too excited about a line of the Apostles' Creed. and <laughs> It would ruin the illustration. So that's... So that's what I want you to think about this morning. So I want you to think about uh, this story uh, as it was experienced by a first century reader, someone reading this for the first time. They've never heard of Jesus, um, and they're reading about him in Mark chapter 3 here. And so this morning's text, in light of all that, should seem a little strange because it was certainly strange to the original audience. And I think once I point out what's odd about it, we're all going to see it and we'll all see the weirdness of the text. And, and so um, in the first century world, and this is actually a kind of a core foundation of humanity. This is not limited to people in the first century. Uh, but there are two focal points of their identity uh, typically flowed from their natural family, um, your family of origin. That's where you learn to, to speak, to walk, to you know, behave. You learn your virtues and your values. Uh, and they also got their center of identity from their religious institution. And so people knew this. That's common. It's still pretty true. Most of us, uh, have we bear the marks of our, our family of origin, and, and most of us who are raised in some religious tradition feel some sense of identity tied up with that. And so what's weird here is that Jesus takes those two most common pieces of our identity, and he breaks ties with both of them in his own life. And so... If, you haven't, if you're reading Mark for the first time and you haven't 
yet asked the question, who the heck is Jesus? This will certainly trigger that response. Because so far, we see in, in Mark 1, 1, it says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, which we think is just a, you know, an interesting caption. Tim Keller points out that there was another first century document that opened with that title. And every time a new uh, Caesar was announced from Rome, there would be a scroll read in every town that said the beginning of the gospel of Caesar Augustus. And so Mark is actually making a, a pretty provocative statement for a Roman audience. If you're a Roman in the first century, you hear those words and you start to fl- fill in the Caesar part, and then you hear the Jesus Christ, and you're like, the Jesus Christ, is he the new emperor? Um, and in a sense, Mark is saying yes. So you've got that already stirring questions in verse 1. Then you've got him getting baptized. There's no story of his childhood in this account in Mark. He goes right to his baptism. He's tempted by, by Satan in the wilderness for two verses, and then it moves on. This is like a fast-paced, action-packed movie so far. Uh, then he begins his ministry. He's healing many. He cleanses lepers. He calls disciples. He's doing like all this flurry of activity. The scribes are butting up against him in each section, and we'll see that there's a progression there in chapter 2. And so all of this begs the question, who is Jesus? And this morning's passage will, I think it will force us to do some self-assessment and take some inventory. And what's curious about this story, uh, when I first opened the lectionary this week, I didn't like how big of a chunk it was. I was like, well, that's too much. You know, that could be five sermons. Um, And it could be. I stand by that. But but it's only one sermon this week, and I'm not going to make it the length of five. So you're welcome. <laughs> but uh, what's interesting about this story is that it's got a clever literary device from Mark. He actually sandwiches, he's telling two stories in three sections. So if you turn with me to page 838 and you look down at Mark chapter 3, verse 20, we see him talk about Jesus' family. He said, Then he went home and the crowds were gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, They went out to seize him, for they were saying he's out of his mind. Then you think, okay, we're finally going to hear something about Jesus' family. You know, they skipped over that in the beginning, but, you know, we'll we'll catch it up here. Um, But Mark moves right on, verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, so he introduces this idea of his family, but he gives his family time to travel down to where he is. He's like, and in the meantime, we're going to deal with this scribe situation that's a more pressing matter uh, in Jesus, uh, in, in the narrative account. So Mark sandwiches this story between the two about his family, and he's actually trying to contrast the two groups. So look for that compare and contrast, the scribes' reaction to Jesus and, fam- and Jesus' family reaction to Jesus. But first we're going to start with the scribal account. This is Mark 32, or 22 to 30. Uh, and so the scribes have now been questioning Jesus for a bit of time already, and they're kind of stumped by him. Uh, In chapter 2, he heals a paralytic, and they're questioning in their hearts, and Jesus responds. Uh, And then they they see him perform another miracle, and then they start asking his disciples. You know, they're kind of standing inside the back of the room, and they're like, hey, you know, know, what is he claiming? And then, you know, he starts picking food on the Sabbath to eat, and then they accuse him directly to his face. And so they're getting more and more bold, and they're trying to come up with more and more objections to what Jesus is doing. And so... Verse 22, this, I, it only struck me this time this week when I was reading it. It says, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, 
And so this gives me the impression the scribes were already questioning him. But now in chapter 3, it's like they called for scribal reinforcements. They're like coming down from Jerusalem now. And they're like, well, we couldn't figure him out, so let's call in, you know, let's call in the big boys from Jerusalem and see you know, if they can find anything wrong with him. So they're coming here with the express purpose of questioning Jesus because that's what the scribes have been doing. And so um, they see what he's doing. They see him cast out a demon from someone. And the problem here is a problem that will be familiar to us. And I think this is one where we see the problem presented to the scribes and the same problem is presented to us. I'll get to that in a second. Uh, But there's only a limited number of options for explaining what happens. When you watch someone cast out a demon in front of you, there's really three options I can think of. The first option is you can say, well, that didn't really happen. It's just trickery. You know, it's some kind of a magic show. And I think that's what a lot of, you know, 21st century Western people, that's our, we're inclined to go that direction. We're just to say, you know, that, that couldn't have been quite what it seems. For some reason, the scribes, whatever they saw, ruled this out. They didn't start with this approach. So whatever they saw from Jesus, his works were so powerful, so mighty, that they were like, a a demon was definitely there and it's definitely gone. It was definitely cast out. So let's look at our other options. Option number two, you can say, well, indeed he's powerful, but his, his power is evil. And then option number three is you could say Jesus is who he says he is. So Jesus, option three is off the table for the scribes. That's not what they're there for. Option one is ruled out. So they go with option two. And they say, yeah, you're, you're casting out demons. You're doing powerful things, but you're doing it with evil power. And so we can discredit you now. And so Jesus, he responds here with some pretty basic logic, right? You know, he doesn't need to go on some lengthy diatribe here. He's just, you know, and it's not a, you know, appealing to scripture, really, even he's just basic logic. This is a simple syllogism. And I think, you know, one, uh, I, I think Christians are allowed to use logic to defend their, their faith and their position. Uh, and in fact, they should. Jesus does it here. But his basic logic, he says, you know, premise one, Satan is united. They're like, yeah, sure. We agree with that. He said, two, I'm casting out Satan. Right? You saw that. You saw that it was an evil spirit and he's gone now. And they said, yeah. And he said, well, I can't be Satan, otherwise Satan wouldn't be united. So premise two can't be one, can't be true if premise one is true. Uh, so, you know, I can't be casting out Satan, otherwise Satan would be casting out himself and he wouldn't be united, which is an idea that you guys already accept. So he just uses some logic on him here. And then he describes what he's doing as binding the strong man. He uses a couple of parables here. And this, this binding the strong man is the, it's one of the ones in here that I could have turned into its own sermon. It's worthy of its own time. Um, but essentially, he's setting up, he's showing, this is what I'm going to be doing. Uh, this is my ministry. Right now, I'm binding Satan's hands, because right now, you know, much of the world is under the dominion of darkness. I'm going to bind his hands so that I can come and do what I'm going to do. I'm here for redemption and reconciliation and, uh, and bringing life. And so... In order to do that, I'll start by binding the strong man. So he describes what he's doing. And then, curiously, and this is what struck me as weird. So I, I had a couple different points that I was like, you know, maybe I'll just make that the whole sermon. And this next section here, when we get to um, verses 28, 29, 30, I looked here and I was like, well, this doesn't really fit with anything that I'm talking about. Maybe I'll just skip over that. That's a bad idea. When you're tempted to do that, 
When you're in the middle of a story and something doesn't make sense, you don't just skip over that element of the story. Um, so learn from my mistake. Because what I saw here, and so I started reading the whole Gospel of Mark. So every day this week I read Mark 1, 2, and 3. I was like, let me get, get up to speed here, see what's happening. And um, because Jesus starts talking about blasphemy. He's like, let me give a lesson. You know, I gave you two parables there to respond to your accusation, and now I'm going to give you a small teaching on the doctrine of blasphemy. And it's like, well, this is kind of odd, but it's not. If you flip back one page to uh, chapter 2, verse 7, the scribes uh, saw him uh, heal the paralytic, and Jesus says to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, verse 7, why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So Jesus takes this opportunity with the scribes. He said, hey, remember when you said I was blaspheming? No, that wasn't that. Was, what blaspheming is what you just did. Um, so he's like, you know, just put that one in his pocket and pull it back up for when it comes out naturally. And here we see the scribes blaspheming. And so this deserves a, a side note of its own. And once again, this is another little chunk that could be its own sermon because he calls it the unforgivable sin, and many faithful Christians are troubled by that, that phrase. Um, and so let me define blasphemy according to this section. Blasphemy is looking at the Spirit of God, the work of God, and calling it evil. That's blasphemy according to Jesus. So most of you are not in danger of committing blasphemy, and especially if you're asking the question, oh, gee, I hope I haven't blasphemed or I'm not blaspheming. You're probably not. Probably. Um, it would be hard for me to see how someone concerned about doing that would be doing it. That's not a challenge to go find a way, but that is saying, <laughs> that is saying, you know, that's, you're probably not in danger of blasphemy um, because they were looking directly at the Son of God and saying it was Satan. And that's something many of us are not tempted to do. So here you see Jesus breaking ties with uh, the center of his religious identity. These are the scribes coming down from Jerusalem. If you're a first century Jew, that's as Jewish as it gets, coming down from Jerusalem to speak with you, and Jesus is willing to break ties with them. So the reader must you know, be questioning at this point, well, you know, what does he have instead? You know, what, what, what is his identity based out of, if not that? And... and We'll throw out a second hypothesis here. It's like maybe he'll retreat to his family because at the end of this section, if you're the reader, you think, whew, like those religious leaders were tough on Jesus. But we read that his family is coming to the rescue. You know, they're, they're going to back him up. They're going to his support group, his safety net. They're going to be here for him. And so the narrative comes back to them. Now we're in verse 31. And it says, his mother and brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they had said to him, your mother and brothers are outside seeking you. So it looks like the family has come to the rescue, except Jesus knows why they're there, right? And what does Jesus say? He says, who are my mother and brothers? And looking at those around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my mother and sister and brother. And so Jesus, I mean, let's get the picture right here. The crowd is so large around Jesus. So many followers. A chapter ago, just in the second chapter of Mark, he had to stand on a boat and preach because if he stood on the shore and preached, he would have been crushed physically by the number of people. It's like Beatlemania, and this is only chapter 2. 
in the story of Jesus. So Mark, you know, he does not disappoint. He gives that strong introduction in Mark 1.1, and he follows it up. The crowds are swarming around him. So Jesus' family, they can't even get near him, so they pass the message to him that he's here. And Jesus has just been confronted, probably painfully, so it hurts to be, you know, accused of things falsely, especially by your own religious leaders. So he, you know, he's with now his followers, and his family comes, and they're ready to take him away because they think he's out of his mind. Uh, and so he, he, out of frustration, he, he looks at those around him, and he says, look, here are my mother and brother and sisters. Here's my support group. This is my safety net. The people who do the will of God, the people who are following God, are the ones who are my family. And this, you know, this raises a couple different issues, and this is, so this is homework. You can go, you know, some people ask the question, uh, you know, well, did Jesus break one of the Ten Commandments? Is he not honoring his mother here? That's a tough question. The answer is no, but I don't have time to expound on it because, once again, that would be its own sermon series. Uh, but no, Jesus did not break any Ten Commandments. You can go read that one on your own later. Uh, but what we do see from Jesus here are a couple really important things. And the first thing I see uh, here is, one, Jesus models for us, right? He's the perfect image of God, the perfect image of man. He's what man is supposed to be. And so Jesus here, he will not ask anything of his disciples that he himself is not willing to do. And if you go to Mark one twenty-seven, Jesus calls his disciples, and he calls them away from their families. He asks them to break ties with their families. And then in chapter 3 here, we see him break a tie with his family. That's the cost of the gospel for these guys. This is what it's worth. Is it's worth surrendering, you know, that safety net, that source of self that they find in family. And so it's hard. Uh, but there are there are three reasons here why Jesus did this. And once you once you see the reasons and they continue as a theme throughout the Gospel of Mark, you understand why he's doing what he's doing. And we understand how difficult it is, but we don't quite have a why yet. And so, one, we'd say that Jesus' family is not properly aligned with God's mission. They are not asking the question, is Jesus doing what God wants him to do? They're asking, you know, they're, they're concerned about, you know, I want my son back, I want my brother back, I don't want him to get killed. They're worried about his safety. Those are good things. But a family, you know, the family of God should be concerned about the will of God first and foremost. And so they're not in line with that. At this point, you know, there's reconciliation later between Jesus and his family. But at this point, they are not interested primarily in what God wants. They're interested in what they want. Secondly, Jesus is properly aligned with the gospel. So the family is not, you know, they're they're kind of on their own trajectory, but Jesus is lockstep with uh, his gospel-centered identity, kingdom-centered identity, his mission that God has sent him here for. And so he just simply says, you know, look, this is how it is. And then finally, he says his true family are those that are aligned with the gospel. So Jesus now redefines family. He says your family, he said your natural family is your natural family, and that can, you know, it can be a good and wonderful thing. But the truer family, the more important family, are those that are in in line with the will of God. And so remember when I said that this passage forces us for self-assessment. Here's the self-assessment. The question for the original reader that they had to ask themselves when reading this is the same question that you and I have to ask. And the question is this. Are you properly aligned with the gospel? Or, Or to say it a different way, is the gospel at the center of your identity? 
Is it the most defining feature of who you are? And are you willing to break ties with your natural family or a religious institution or any other number of things that people often tie their identities to? And I'm going to offer you a diagnostic for that in a minute here. But the idea that I want you to wrestle with, and I'm putting it negatively, so prime, in positive terms, God wants us, he wants our prime allegiance, first order of allegiance. We're loyal to God first and foremost, and everything else comes second. And in fact, that way of thinking is how St. Augustine defines sin. He said sin is disordered love. He said you can love all of the correct things, but in the wrong order. He said, so if St. Augustine were reading this passage, he would say, you know, Jesus' family has family here, God here. Those are both good things. You should love them both, but you need the order switched. And for many people, religious institution comes here before God. And so there there are two categories of hearers that listen to this, and everyone fits into one. Some of us fit into both. I'm probably a little bit in both camps here. So for some of us, this passage means that we need to go through dethroning our other centers of life. If something has become the center of our identity, the center of our being, and it's not Jesus, then we need to dethrone those things. That can be a very painful and difficult process, but it's a necessary process. Uh, and so that's, that's kind of the bad news. The good news is for some of us, this is extremely encouraging. Uh, it means we're finally getting a center. If you didn't come from a normal, you know, healthy affirming family, um, Jesus, you know, Jesus' message this morning is, look, you don't have to let that broken family you know, be your identity anymore. You have a new identity with a spiritual family of God, and it's, and it's fathered by God the Father, who's the perfect father. That's all the love and support you, know, you could ever ask for, and the family is much bigger than your natural family. So that can be wonderful news, and for some of us that have good families, it's like bonus good news. Um, you know, I trust that my natural family is in the family of God, and, and we function that way. So families are a wonderful gift, but even good ones can let you down and can hurt you. And, and through Jesus, we have access to God the Father as our Father. And so here's, our, here's my diagnostics for you. This is two ways of telling where your center of identity is, and they can be anywhere. But this morning's passage deals with religious institution, and it deals with family. And so... Here's number one, religious institution. If someone asks you about your church and you spend more time talking about the particulars, the tradition, and the legacy of the church than you do talking about Jesus, then you might have things out of order. Now, some of those things are important, but if that's where your mind goes to, if that's where you retreat to, that's your safety ground, is the religious institution rather than Jesus himself, then you may have a disordered love. Our love for our religious institutions to us to flow out of our love for Jesus, right? I, I, our, our religious identity comes from Jesus. It's not second to Jesus. Or, I mean, it's not Jesus and not second to it. And then on the family front, and this is a really, really hard one, and, and this is really common, but if you're a child and you're constantly appealing to or saying, well, my dad, my dad, my dad, or my mom, my mom, my mom, or if you're a parent and you're saying, my child, my child, my child, and if you're a grandparent and you say, my grandchild, my grandchild, my grandchild, it's very possible that you've placed your center of identity in another family member. Um, and this is actually a pattern of sin. Um, I, I preached on it in August, I think. Uh, you know, we see it in families in Genesis where 
someone will make an idol of someone else in the family and it creates disorder for generations to come. But it also does personal harm. And so, you know, family is a good and godly thing, but it's not the chief thing. And so we have to lay these commitments aside, but this is, this is really hard to do. There are so many parents who live vicariously through their child. You know, if you have a child who's like, you know, a five-star basketball player, uh, and it becomes all you talk about and all you're concerned with and all you can think about, and it's where you find your sense of meaning, then you've moved from Jesus to something else. And that's what Jesus is addressing here. So Jesus asks his, his disciples to be willing to break ties with natural family and with religious institution when necessary in order to align themselves properly with the gospel. And so we have to lay other commitments to the side to put Jesus at the center. And so if you want to keep seeing this theme developed as Jesus you know, models for us what it's like to just have this gospel-centered identity, I'd encourage you to keep reading the Gospel of Mark because Mark is like laser-focused all the way through this book. And, uh, and it's, it's really wonderful to read. Um, but I would just ask now that you just join me in prayer for a moment. Father God, we, just, um, we thank you for your word this morning. Even when it is uh, difficult and challenging, it is still beneficial. It's uh, sometimes even more so. But just pray that uh, you would guide us uh, and that your spirit would be with us as we process what you've said to us this morning. Just pray that um, you would, we would transform our hearts and our minds, that we'd be open to receive um, healing and correction and the great comfort that is offered to us in the gospel. Uh, just pray that uh, we would be challenged but comforted at the same time and, and that your spirit would work powerfully amongst us. We just ask all these things in your name. Amen.